0: Hello, I'm Kyle Johnson, and this is What Are You Reading?, a podcast devoted to books and the perspectives of their readers. Today's episode is part two of two, about J.R.R. Tolkien's posthumous book, Unfinished Tales of Numenor and Middle-Earth, though my guest and I discuss Tolkien's other work as well. If you missed last week's episode, please go back and listen, as we'll pick back up here with the question we left off on. Thanks so much for listening. Let's go back to the Unfinished Tales really quickly. So, can you talk about maybe one story in particular or maybe even a specific line that stuck out to you in a story? So, well, the value of the Unfinished Tales is
1: innumerable in terms of providing context for all of the ages of Middle Earth that he wrote about. My favorite stories are the two that are encapsulated in the First Age section of Túr and his coming to Gondolin, and Narn E Hîn So. In the histories of the First Age, the fighting against the ultimate evil of the world, Morgoth or Melkor, the interplay of elves and men especially, and by men, I mean capital M, humans. There were two men in particular, Huor and Hurin, who were brothers, and they fought very valiantly in several wars. Both became lords of men and became married. They were then called again to... One of the final battles of the wars in Beleriand, called the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. And you can only guess what that means. Um, Things did not go well. One of them died with a poison arrow in his eye, and one of them was captured and chained to the height of a mountain to spend his days watching a curse unfold in a very Oedipus Rex type of way. And the two stories at the front of this book are the children of. Huor, that is Tuor, and Hurin, that is Turin, his son. And so a passage that I love is a section called The Words of Hurin and Morgoth. So just remember, this is a mortal man, not going to live past 80 or 90, talking to an immortal being who has caused innumerable sorrows among the world. So just get a load of this. But Huron the Steadfast mocked him, saying, Blind you are, Morgoth Bauglir, and blind shall ever be, seeking only the dark. You know not what rules the hearts of men, and if you knew you could not give it. But a fool is he who accepts what Morgoth offers. You will take first the price, and then withhold the promise. And I should get only death if I told you what you asked." So in this, we see the beginning of something that's really compelling, at least to me, which is this concept of the gift of men. Now, men, when they die, and they are only here briefly, their souls go to where others do not know. But it is legend that they go on to be with the creator God. It's a kind of pre-Christian mentality. And so basically, Hurin is saying in that quote, do to me what you will, if you kill me, I'm getting my reward still. You cannot take that away from me. This mortal coil is not tied to the earth forever. I can escape whatever evils you do to it. And so it's this weird flipping of the fear of death into actually kind of a lovely thing.
0: Hmm. Yeah. You know, I talked with somebody a few months ago for the podcast that was reading this book of short stories by Madeline Langle who wrote A Wrinkle in Time mm. that was published posthumously. A lot of the critics said the stories weren't very good, but they're famous just because they're by Madeline Langle and they allow readers to kind of track her development as a writer. Mm. And I'm curious if the same type of effect happens with these unfinished tales. I mean, is there any element of being able to track Tolkien's writing process by reading through some of them?
1: Yeah, great question. Absolutely there is, especially when you compare it directly to his most complete work, that is Lord of the Rings. So The Hobbit was written as originally a standalone text. He had been writing, like I said, since the 19-teens from the trenches. But he never expected to publish any of that. He was writing essentially for himself. And then he wrote The Hobbit, and he was grading papers when he he found a blank sheet at the back of one of the student's essay books and just scribbled the line, In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And there it began, the actual writing of a book that would be eventually be published to great critical acclaim, But there's all these references, again, to things like Gondolin and Elrond Half-Elven. And so the publisher said, hey, why don't you write us a sequel? That sounded great. Well, Mm -hmm. 18 years later, he publishes his magnum opus, The Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. But a lot was going on in the behind the scenes, if you will. So the Unfinished Tales provide for us both a further context and depth of world building, but it also shows us – his ability to write in all of these different tones. So the section I just read a moment ago is very lofty. It's very um esoteric in a sense, you know, and archaic in meter. But when you read a section from the Hobbit or even better a section from Lord of the Rings from the hobbit's perspective, it's much more accessible to us. Even almost 100 years after their publication, you can still feel like you're right there with these characters. But then there's other times where the characters write in a very lofty tone and register. And so, again, it's just a fascinating way for us to kind of examine the man's writing process, like you brought up, but also to see the depth and ability of one person to write from so many different perspectives. And They're called unfinished for a reason. So some of them are essentially done as in, you know, the conclusion of the story, but there's holes where he didn't write a complete manuscript or he did, but it wasn't stylistically the same. So it required more editing. There's other sections that are essentially outlines of what he would have intended to write a story about. And so you can also see the depth of organization that he went to. He wanted these things to be internally consistent. So down to the tracking of the moon cycle to make sure that when the (laughs) characters saw a full moon in front of the mines of Moria, that that actually made sense from when they left Rivendell to go on the quest of the ring. So, you know, that level of detail.
0: Hmm. Well, with that being said, I mean... Is this book in particular a good book for somebody who maybe hasn't read any Tolkien?
1: I would say if you're someone who loves history more than fiction, this would be an interesting book to start with. It requires a level of commitment, for lack of a better word, to get through. It doesn't read like a novel where you start on page one and end on page 500. It's more like essays with some narrative text in between. In fact, I would call it all narrative, but there are large sections of notes of Christopher inserting notes about uh, when he references this particular plant, for example. He's actually talking about some fictionalized plant or some real-world plant, for example. It's not for the faint of heart, though, I would say, but it is very rewarding to work through.
0: Mm -hmm. How were you first introduced to... Tolkien. Was it The Hobbit for you?
1: Yeah, it was. My mother was reading me The Hobbit from the time I was five or six. And soon after, there's a production company in the UK called Rankin and Bass, who produced a fantastic children's cartoon. I think it was a made-for-TV movie in the late 70s with a hilarious soundtrack. It was kind of a musical in a sense, which sounds hilarious, But if you've ever read The Lord of the Rings, there's a song every 15 pages. So in a sense, The Lord of the Rings is a musical on paper. Um, (laughs) So so this cartoon, along with the deep memories of my mother reading the book to me, instilled in me a deep love of fantasy and myth, heroism, but first and foremost, a love for the works of Mm J.R.R.
0: Other than having this interest in that world and probably learning more about it and being part of online communities for Mm -hmm. it how has this interest kind of changed your day-to-day life i mean Mm -hmm. are you ever faced with the situation in your life that you think of the moral of the story in a a tolkien tale or anything like that
1: (laughs) what a lovely question kyle because you know, one of the biggest criticisms Tolkien's work faces is it's seen as a black and white story. You're either entirely good or entirely bad. And that's an unfortunate aftermath of the Peter Jackson adaptations, but it was even in its initial publication, people who weren't reading deeply and thoughtfully were criticizing the work for that because in fact it's quite the opposite. Almost every good character has multiple stumbles, if not outright falls. In fact, Tolkien lists three major themes throughout all of his work. That is the fall, the machine, and mortality. So in everything that he's writing, he's playing with the idea of what it means to be mortal, what it means to die, what it means to create things and to have, quote unquote, progress throughout the world and what it is to fall genuinely from grace or from what is good and holy. Now, I'm an atheist, and he was a devout Catholic, and you can read religion into his work, but I still find great solace in it despite that.
0: Hmm. You know which character I think is the most compelling, in The Lord of the Rings at least, Hmm. is Smeagol. Yes. And the reason for that is because you see the – Complexity. It's all there for you to see. You don't have to read into it because half the time he's good and helping, you know, the hobbits. And then the other half of the time he's dealing with some inner demons, I think is safe to say. I guess I also like when he's in his evil side, how he talks through his thought process. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think the films, which, by the way, I'm a
1: huge fan of the Peter Jackson trilogy, don't get me wrong. That's one of the things they got the most right was showing that complexity of his character. I think that Mm -hmm. makes up for some of the black and white binary thinking that we see. Smeagol Gollum gives us a really great cluing into that. So I I love that.
0: Mm -hmm. Right, right. So I'll give you the last word. So to conclude, what should people know about Unfinished Tales of Numenor? What else would you like to say about it? If you
1: are a fan of the Rings of Power on Amazon Prime, I would say this is a great book to pick up. It's going to provide you with context for what they are trying to do, what they may be deviating from, and and the larger world that Tolkien has for us. It can kind of give you that context of what it is they're completely fabricating, because to be clear, they don't have rights to this book. They only have rights to The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and the appendices of The Lord of the Rings. So there's not a lot to go on for the second age in those books, but there's a lot that they can allude to.
0: You know, I I really enjoy talking with people who love Tolkien in the same way that I like talking to people who love Wagner, Mm. because it seems like One could never extinguish the amount of things to talk about with with those two people and their works. So, yeah, I appreciate that. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Kyle. My guest today and last week was Nick Houle, who's reading Unfinished Tales of Numenor and Middle Earth by J.R.R. Tolkien. If today's title interests you, please consider purchasing a copy from the bookshop.org link in the show notes. Buying from here supports local bookshops and this podcast. The music heard on What Are You Reading is from the album Wallflower by percussionist Julian Loida. If you liked what you heard today, please consider following and leaving the show a good rating and review, as this helps us reach interested listeners. If you have extra feedback or an idea for a title or genre you'd like represented, you can contact me using the email address in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and as always, happy reading!